Bible's open to Ephesians chapter 2. We are in the same passage of Scripture that we were in last week. Last week, I got carried away. I got stuck in my soapbox. And as I was driving home, I thought, you know, there was so much more to say about those first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 that we weren't able to fit in uh, on last week. And so as I prayed about it, God directed me to stay right there. That's the neat thing about God and his word, isn't it? That I could literally preach from this text 52 times a year. All Every sermon could come from this text and we'd have a completely different sermon, a completely different takeaway, completely different points, and still yet do honor to the text. Why is that? Because the Bible that you're holding in your hands is alive. It's not a dead book. It's a book that is alive. And so God speaks to us from his word. So this is a completely different sermon from last week, but God has led me back here because I believe that there are more truths from the scripture that we can pull out and to talk about. One of the things that I love about Florida, there's many things that we love about Florida, but one of the things that we love most about Florida are the sunsets. Uh, going over a lake or over an ocean, you cannot beat a Florida sunset or a Florida sunrise over the ocean, over over water. And it's so beautiful, it's so serene, and we see God's work, we see God's hand in all of this. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, as we'll see in just a moment, that there is a greater work than sunsets and sunrises, and that greater work is you and I. The Bible says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 that we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ. Man is indeed the crowning achievement of God. We read in Psalm, uh, we read in Psalm 139 that when God created us, even in the womb, we were designed by the deity. Every one of us bear the stamp made by God. That's why even when we're in the womb, we believe that that the womb is sacred because at conception is where life begins. God begins to fashion life there in the womb. Each man, each woman fashioned. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, the prophet Jeremiah declared, I was called of God to be a prophet to the nations even from my mother's womb. It's clear, isn't it, that we are beautifully and wonderfully made? Today is Mother's Day, and many ladies here, and some of you are moms. God has allowed you to have children. Some here have, God has allowed you to be a double blessed and have grandchildren or great grandchildren. And because of that, it, it speaks of the awesome work of God. But there are other ladies here, as we've already talked about. At the very beginning, maybe you came in late and you completely missed the opening part as we talked about all the ladies here, that we want to honor all the ladies on this Mother's Day. And there are some here today, and you're not able to have children. You've not been able to. Your womb has been closed, and perhaps you look at yourself and you've asked yourself this question. Maybe you've asked, is there something wrong with me? Listen to me very clearly. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. You are God's beautiful work of art. He created you unique, the perfect, the way you are. Stop thinking less of yourself and begin to see the way, see yourself the way God sees you as special. And that's what I want to speak to you about today is this life that God has given to us, this life that God has prepared for us, how we are special, not because of something that we have done, but we are special because of what he has already done for us. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, God, I ask that you'll speak to us from it. Open our hearts and open our minds in these moments of worship through reading and the proclamation of your word that we may hear what you have to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Please be seated. Three points today, and it talks about our life with Christ. It talks about our past. It talks about our present. It talks about our future. As we look at these 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, I believe that we see our past, we see our present, and we also see our glorious future for those who are in Jesus Christ. Number one, our past before Jesus, we are promised forgiveness. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. Our past before Jesus is that we are promised forgiveness. You see, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 1, we were dead. A person apart from faith in Christ is not simply sick, they're dead. A person who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord is, the Bible said, dead without life of God. Remember Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve, they were walking through the garden. They were told, don't eat of the fruit of the tree that was in the midst of the garden, the tree uh, that bore the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely, what, church? Die. You'll die. Well, here comes Satan as a snake. He, he begins to slither along. He comes up to uh, Adam and Eve, and he said, surely God did not say that if you take of this fruit that you'll die. And so what did Adam and Eve do? They bought into the lie of Satan. They, they took the fruit and they ate. And the Bible says they died. You say, now, wait a minute. They didn't die. My Bible says that they carried on a conversation. They realized they were naked. They, they hid themselves. They carried on a conversation with God, they, that, that, that God was there. How did they die? If they died, it seems like they were pretty much alive to me. They didn't die physically. They didn't die on the outside, but they died on the inside. Something happened to their soul, their, their, their spirit of Adam and Eve. It's called spiritual death. They were naked the whole time, but they just realized that there was something wrong with being naked because of the sin that had now entered into the equation. No longer did they have close communion with God. They were cast out of the garden. They were separated from God. They were separated from fellowship with God. God created us to have fellowship with him. God created each and every one of us as human beings. Of the three living things that God created, plants, animals, and man, man is the greatest achievement that God created. He looked at man, he said, this is good. When he looked at woman, he said, this is very good. I'm trying to help you out, ladies. That's an amen place for you. He said, said, Adam, you're good, but Eve, you're very good. That's awesome. And so he created man, he created woman, and, and he said that this is my greatest creation. You see, that's what separates us from, the, from, from, from every other living thing is our ability to commune with God. We are created. We are created with this GPS system in our heart to connect with God. But Adam and Eve, when sin entered into the equation, when sin entered into their heart, something happened to that relationship. That relationship was broken. 
And God looked down and he said, okay, I have an answer. The answer didn't come immediately, but the answer came many years later in the form of Jesus. He sent his son, his only son, to die on a cross to, 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 to pardon our sin, to create the gulf that we had created, to fill that in, to provide a way for us to come back into a relationship with God. They were cast out of the garden, though. This sin, this cancer that came into Adam and Eve, we inherited it. David said, I was born into sin. You see, you don't have, this is what we talked about last week. You don't have to teach a, a child to lie, to, to steal, to take something that doesn't, you don't have to teach a child to throw a temper tantrum. Why is that? Because sin is, is innate into us because we are born into sin, but we also choose to sin. Some people think that the Bible, the gospel, salvation, that, that's only for a certain group of people, people that are down and out, people who are drunk. It, the, the salvation is only for the prostitute, the, the pornographer, the addict, someone else. But the fact is that we are all in need of salvation. I heard about a boy and his dad. They, they came to church on Memorial Day Sunday. That's coming up very soon, just a couple of weeks away. And they they had brought flowers. They had flowers up on the stage in memory of the soldiers that had died. The little boy said to his dad, said, Daddy, what do all these flowers mean? And his daddy said, well, son, these flowers are the people who died in the service. Little boy's eyes got big and wide. He said, which service, the first one or the second one? <laughs> you know, there are people who come to church and they're dead every week. You don't miss a service. You're in the first service. You're in the second service. You're, you come to every service, and, and yet there's something not right. You're separated from God. No vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Mark my word. Every person who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are dead. You are dead in your sin. You are dead in your trespasses. Every person apart from God is dead. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he raised three people from death to life. One was a young girl who had been dead for just a few moments. The second was a young boy who he had raised from the dead who had been dead for several hours. The third person that Jesus raised from the dead was the man Lazarus who had been dead for days. Now, I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Of the three people that Jesus raised from the dead... The young girl who was dead for a few moments, the young boy who was dead for a few hours, uh, Lazarus who was dead for a few days, which one of those three were deader? <laughs> well, they're all dead, right? Dead is dead. There, there, are no, there are no different shades of death. Death is death. The only distinction, the only distinction, the only difference was the state of decay. Now, there are some sinners who don't smell as bad as other sinners. Maybe, maybe rigor mortis hasn't set in yet, and it's not as great. Some may not smell at all. They cover it up real well. Maybe your name's on the roll of a church, and you come to church every Sunday. On the inside, you're dead. As Jesus said, look at these whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. He was talking to the Pharisees, the religious people, and we have Pharisees in our midst today. People who believe that salvation is tied up of, of doing good and doing this and doing right and completely miss the point of a relationship that, that God says you must, it's all about a relationship. 
Everyone apart from Jesus Christ is dead. Dead is dead. Doesn't matter if you've been dead a few minutes. Doesn't matter if you've been dead for years. It doesn't matter. Death is death. You say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. You know what you're saying? Well, I'm not as dead as that person. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world, but yet he lost his own soul? Before Christ, we were governed by the world. We were guided by the world. It says that we walked in accordance with uh, the course of this world, Ephesians chapter 2. We walked in accordance with the course of this world, Ephesians 2, 2. Last week, we mentioned these three areas. I want to mention them again here today. First of all, the world, the course of the world. When it says that we walked in the course of the world, it doesn't mean that we were walking with purpose. The word walk here in the Greek means to meander. It means to just trying to find your way. You're, you're stumbling through life. Your, your life isn't making sense. It's like the wind. The wind, you cannot control the wind. Wind blows wherever it wants to. And those who are without Jesus, they, they may be walking, they may be, may be wealthy, they may seem to have everything together, but the Bible says the person who does not know Jesus is just walking in the course of this world. They're, they're just meandering through. Life is not making sense to them. That's what it is when the world is in control. We're dominated by the world, but not only are we dominated by the world, but we're directed by the devil. Paul says that the prince of the power of the air who works in the sons of disobedience. So not only are we following the world, but we're also following Satan. There's a third one. There's a third force working against us. Verse 3, among whom also we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, the works of the flesh. So we have the world that's fighting against us. We have Satan that's fighting against us when, when, when we're lost. And then we also have the flesh. Paul defines the flesh. Let me define it for you. He, he gives us a very good definition in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and following. He says, the works of the flesh, the lust of the flesh are this. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, rivalries, and the like. So you see, before Jesus Christ, before we came to know Christ as our Savior and Lord, before you were saved, we all had a real problem. We, we were walking in the ways of the world. The world is going to do this, isn't it? The world is going to lead us in this way. Uh, we have the world, we have the flesh, we have the devil. And this is what we were without Jesus Christ. And now as a result of this, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that those without God, those who are being directed by these three Uh, forces are children of wrath. What that means is that God has placed a target on your back and judgment is going to come. He is targeting our back and says, judgment, my judgment is going to fall upon that person. Why is that? Well, when God looks at sin, God meets our sin with his wrath. When we sin, when a person who does not know Jesus sins, their sin is met with the wrath of God. That's what the Bible teaches, right? That God is holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah comes into the presence of God, or actually God shows up, and he shows up in the temple, and he shows himself very real. And Isaiah looks up, and he sees God, and he sees the seraphim, the angels, and the angels are singing a song. They're saying what? Holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew text doesn't have an exclamation point. You know, in English, if, if you want to say, 
the dog ran, period. You say the dog ran. But if you want to say with excitement, you put an exclamation the dog ran. You put an exclamation point, right? And Hebrew doesn't have an exclamation point. The, the, the only way they can give a superlative is to repeat it. So if they want to put an exclamation point on something, they repeat it. So that's why when Isaiah is looking up and he sees the angels, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. It's exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. God is separated from sin. God is the holy other. And what did Isaiah say? He said, woe is me. Woe is me. That's the fifth time in Isaiah, up to Isaiah chapter 6. It's the fifth time the word woe is found. The first four times Isaiah is preaching to the people and saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, in Isaiah 1 through 5. He's saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But this time, when he comes in to worship God, he's not saying, woe are they. He says, woe is me. And this woe is a more powerful woe. It's the most, it, it, it's, it, it's a different word for woe than what he used for the people. It was the deepest, most repentant word a Hebrew could utter when he said, woe is me, for I am undone. What was Isaiah's, what was Isaiah's profession? What was he? He was a preacher, right? He was a prophet. What was his tool? What does a preacher use to proclaim his mouth, his tongue? And he said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. So here's a man who has been proclaiming woe to the people. And when God shows up, when God shows up, the one thing that Isaiah thought that he had right, he realized, I ain't even got this right. Because in the presence of holy, holy, holy God, even my instrument, even my mouth is deceitful. Woe is me, for I am undone. So you see, when God shows up, and this goes, this this is a completely different sermon. But the point is this. You cannot worship God if you're living in sin. It's impossible. God will not show up in your life and speak into your life if there is unconfessed sin in your life. That's why it's vital. When you come to a worship service such as this, you you pray and you say, God, forgive me of my sin. You come into clean because when you come clean, it's at that point when, when Isaiah confessed his sin, woe is me for I am undone. It's after that when God showed up and he said, Isaiah, I'm going to use you in a powerful way. You see, that's what worship is all about, is coming into his presence. But God will not step into the presence of sin. He cannot do it. He will not do it. God will not be party to sin. So it says that we are children of wrath. There was a target on our back. We were going to be met with the wrath of God. This was our past. But we had this promised forgiveness. And what, what leads us to is to the present with Jesus, the proclaimed faith. And I thank God that it didn't end with our past. It didn't end with we are children of wrath, but we have this these two little words, but God. Have you ever noticed that little words have sometimes a very big meaning? When a man and a woman are standing in a church such as this and that man says, I do, two little words, they have a whole lot of meaning, don't they? I do. What about that word so? In John 3.16, it doesn't say, for God loved the world, but it says, for God so 
love the world. How much love is in that little word, so? It doesn't say for God love it, for God so loved the world. And here in our text, we have the word but, but God intervened. But God invaded human history and he sent his son, his only son, Jesus Christ, to come on a rescue mission from heaven to hell, to come and rescue us, to die on the cross for us. Why? Because we were in a deep pit. We were in a grave we could not get out of. Our past, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, remember we walked aimlessly. We walked with no point. We were stuck in a pit that we could not climb out of. I heard about a man who fell in a pit and several people walked by and they gave their opinions. One man was a subjective person. A subjective person came along. He said, well, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, well, it's quite logical that a person would be down there. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in a pit. It's okay. These are jokes. I got a lot of them. You didn't like those. I got some more. A Pharisee says only a bad person would fall into a pit. Yoda came along and said, fall in a pit, did you? Well, that wasn't very good Yoda. That was almost Scottish. I don't know where it came from, but Sarah told me, don't do your Yoda accent. It doesn't work. Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. A Hindu said, your pit is for purging you and you'll come back in another life in a smaller pit. The socialist says, all these rich people put you in that pit. Oh, it gets better. The evolutionist says, you are a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle. You're going to die in the pit so you do not produce inferior pit-failing and falling offspring. The self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. The Internal Revenue Service agent said, have you paid your taxes on your pit? You didn't laugh at that one, you afraid... We don't have cameras. You don't get audited for laughing. It's okay. A Democrat came along and said, we've got a government program to help you out of your pit. I made that one up. But so I don't get letters and emails. I have one for the Republican. A Republican came by and said, with less government, less taxes, you can get out of the pit on your own. The realist said, now there's a pit. The optimist said, things could get worse. Pessimist said, things will get worse. The idealist said the world shouldn't have pits. You know, we, we laugh at this, but isn't that what the world tells us? The world looks at all of us when we're lost, when we're in a pit, controlled by those three areas, the course of this world, Satan, and the flesh. And those things that I just said, we laugh at, but why do I laugh at it? Because there's a hint of truth in it. What I just said is what the world is offering. All of these things that we just said, this is what the world is saying. You want salvation? You want to get out of your pit? Let me tell you how to get out. And they give us some nugget to help us to to think positive, to, to get out of the pit. But we know none of that works. Jesus came and didn't say a word. When Jesus came, he took off his robe of righteousness and he got in the pit with us. He extended his nail-scarred hand, his blood-stained hand, and said, put your hand in mine, follow me. And he pulled us out of the pit. The old hymn says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me.
Love lifted me when nothing else would do. Love lifted me. By his great love, by his rich mercy, he reached down, he rescued us, he raised us, he loved us, he lifted us. Not only that, but according to this passage, the Bible says that he set us with Christ in the heavenlies. We're there spiritually, we're there positionally, we're with him. Do you know what that means when it says that we're with Christ in the heavenlies? Let me tell you what it means. Jesus Christ is exalted. On the day of Pentecost, he rose and and he went to be with God. Ascended on high at the right hand of the throne of God. Being seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It means all authority, all power, that everything in the universe, principalities and powers, all of those things are under his feet. Well, guess where you are, believer? You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Everything that is under his feet is under your feet. You don't have to fret over the circumstances of life. You don't have to continue to live, trying to live above the circumstances of life. You don't have to feel drowning, trying to get yourself above the the water just to breathe. It doesn't mean that we don't have problems. Of course we're going to have problems. But what it means is that we have power over our problems. That in the circumstances of life, it, when, when, when the world is shattered and the world is saying there is no hope as the Christian, because we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we see there is hope and it's a living hope with Jesus Christ. The authority of Christ. We're lifted up with him, saved. You say, well, how do I know this kind of salvation? How can I experience this kind of salvation? If you can't say Christ is my Savior and Lord, If you're here today and you're not saved, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're not in the present. You're you're not with Jesus. You're before Jesus. You're not with him. You've not proclaimed faith yet. You're you're before that. You're still in point number one. You're you're still tied up in those three areas that, that are influencing you. You are walking aimlessly through life trying to figure out life. A big void is in your heart because you're trying to fill that void with so many other things. You may be a fine person. You may be an educated person, a good person. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way you can come in from the past to the present, the only way you can move past before Jesus and come present with Jesus is to proclaim faith. F-A-I-T-H, faith. A preacher out in Daytona Beach several years ago wrote an acrostic for that word faith, F-A-I-T-H, is forsaking all, I trust him. Dr. Bobby Welch from the First Baptist Church of Daytona Beach. I love that definition because that's a great definition for faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. You want to know how you move from death to life? You want to know how it is that you move from being lost in your trespasses and sins, being dead in your trespasses and sins, and coming to life in Jesus? The way it happens is through faith, forsaking all, forsaking everything, forsaking it all and following him and trusting him. And when we do that, it leads us into our future, a bright future for Jesus. And that's where we produce fruit. Verse 8, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Wouldn't it be good, Christian, if we could get these in the right order? By grace, through faith, unto works. That's the order. That's the order it is in Scripture. But we like to reverse that, don't we? 
We don't like by grace through faith unto works. We try to put the works at the front end. Grace is the engine, the locomotive, the train that pushes everything else. If you put works, works is the caboose. Caboose is not going to drive the train. But when you try to put, and we try to do this all the time, I, I, I've got to be good. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to please God. I, I've got to come to church. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I, I've got to earn my way to heaven. We hear it all the time, don't we? We get it out of order. Here in the Bible it says, by grace through faith unto works. We're saved through faith when we believe in Christ. And when we're saved, we're saved. And then as James says, once we have faith, our faith will then produce works. We are his workmanship, Ephesians 2 says. Of course, we are a work in progress. We're in process. I've noticed here in Florida, you have the same problem in Florida that we had in Tennessee. All of the road, there's road construction everywhere. And it seems like it takes years to, to, to construct a, a, what seems to be just a little road. When, when we go out to the beach, we cross over, uh, going through Sanford and we're trying to drive to the beach and they, they've always got that bridge shut down. We've only got one lane going. And, and I, I'm thinking every time I go through there, I'm, I'm reminding myself, I'm like that bridge. That bridge has been on construction. I've heard for seven years here. Let me tell you, it's going to be another seven years before it gets done. Amen. But you know, that's how we are, though. We're not perfect. We're a work in progress. The flashing lights are out in our life, or it should be. So many Christians, they, they put their life in cruise control. They say, I, I, I'm wanting to get out of the game. I, I don't want any of this. But listen, God wants to work on you, and he wants to work on me. We've not arrived. We have to allow him, though. We have to allow him. And when you allow him to, to work in you, he will mold you. He will shape you into your future. You're not there yet. Maybe you say, I, I, I'll never arrive. God did not give me the gifts that God gave you or God gave you or God gave you. You don't understand what you just said. You've not yet arrived. Did you hear me? You have not yet arrived. What God is willing and what God is able, is God able to do anything he wants to? Well, yes, of course he is. So God is able to take you from where you are and place you in a place that you never dreamed that he would. Let me give you an example. Let me give you several examples. We'll start with Simon Peter. Jesus met Peter out on the boat. He was a fisherman. He's a roughneck. His name was Simon. Jesus walked up to him and he said, your mama gave you the name Simon, but I'm giving you the name Peter, Petros. It means rock. He said, because Peter, you're going to be a rock. I can only imagine the disciples, the other fishermen around, start laughing and say, Peter, a rock? Peter's not a rock, Jesus. Peter's a flake. <laughs> He's unstable. He's unsteady. He's always shooting off of the mouth. That's who Peter was. But you see, Jesus wasn't looking at the present. And Jesus wasn't looking at the past. Jesus was looking into the future. He saw the miracle that Simon Peter could become. Same thing happened to a man by the name of Gideon. In the Old Testament, Gideon was an Israelite. He was under the oppression of the Midianites. And what, when we meet Gideon, what was Gideon doing? My Bible scholars, what was he doing? He was threshing wheat, right? What does that mean? Remember when we went through Ruth, we said that Ruth, that they would go in, they would glean the wheat, they would take the wheat, they would take it on top of a threshing floor. Normally the threshing floor was on top of a, a hill where the wind would blow. And they'd take the wheat and they would beat it and they would throw it up in the air. And all the chaff would blow away in the wind and that which was good would fall to the ground. Well, where was Gideon? Gideon was on the threshing floor, but where was his threshing floor? Not on top of a hill, but in the basement of a house. You see, Gideon was scared. 
Gideon was afraid of the Midianites. So instead of threshing the wheat where he should have been on a threshing floor, he created a threshing floor in a house because he was afraid. The angel showed up in the basement of this house, and Gideon is here threshing the wheat. It's not working very well because there's no wind blowing, and so he's not getting the chaff removed. And that angel showed up, and that angel had the audacity to say something. What did he say? Oh, mighty man of valor. (laughs) Gideon probably looked around and said, are you talking to me? Who are you talking to? I can hear Gideon now. You're an angel of God. You're not supposed to be mocking me and making fun of me. You're supposed to build me up. That's exactly what the angel was doing. You see, the angel wasn't mocking Gideon. The angel wasn't looking at what Gideon was doing right there or even what he'd done in his past. He was looking at the man that he could become if he followed God. Jacob, the same way. Jacob, the same way. A man who was a liar, a deceiver, a cheat. And God said, you're going to be the prince of my people. You see, we are his workmanship. Notice in verse 10, it says, we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, even our works are the grace of God, given to us, planned by God. He has prepared. He has prepared something for you to do that only you can do. He didn't create you to be Simon Peter. He didn't create you to be Gideon. But God created you as a key, a unique key that will only unlock a certain door. You have no clue what's behind that door. But let me tell you, it's awesome. Whatever God has destined and whatever God has planned for you is awesome. And what breaks my heart, Christian, what breaks my heart are Christians, not necessarily of age, but I see Christians 8 years old, I see Christians 88 years old cash it in. Say, if, if, this all, if this is all there is to offer, I, I'm just going to go in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check in. I'll, I'll come to church. I'll do my, I'll do my religious deal, but I, I'm not going to truly trust God with everything that I've got. We're just going to live, continue to live in the present. That type of person is never going to be the key that God uses to unlock that door. But friend, you're a snowflake. You're unique. You're special. When God created you, he created you with a purpose. He didn't make a mistake. God created you with a purpose. God created you with a plan. God created you with the ability to do something that no one else could do. Whatever that is, that is what Ephesians 2.10 is all about. Whatever that is, is our future with him. Whatever that is, is what God wants you to arrive at and to fulfill. Listen, I I know this to be true because if God has finished with you, the Bible says that when God finishes with you, that's when you go to glory. God doesn't make mistakes. Even in death, God doesn't make mistakes. When God has finished with your purpose and your life here, he promotes you on. But as long as you are here, he's got a plan. He's got a purpose, and it's awesome. So stop throwing your life away. Stop just checking in and punching a time clock. Begin to trust him with a bold faith. Begin to trust him with with an audacious faith. Begin to trust him with this God-sized vision that, God, you've placed this in my heart, and I believe and I trust that you can do it. And you know what he does? You know why he uses people like me and people like you and people like Peter? You know why he uses chumps like us? Because everybody looks around and sees that that person, he wouldn't be able to do that in his own ability. 
If it was up to him, there is no way that would happen. Because when God moves, when God moves in, in people like us, people like Peter, when God moves, all glory, all honor, all majesty must be returned to God because we say, look at what God, I can't do this, but look at what God has done. 